It's the 29th of September, 2015, and this is episode 251. This show is intended for informational and educational purposes only. What cryptocurrency enables is new, empowering, and exciting, but we're not experts. Just obsessed companions walking the road towards a more peer-to-peer future. Today on Let's Talk Bitcoin, we're joined by Chris Odom, a.k.a. Fellow Traveler. Chris, how are you? Very good. Thank you very much. When I was first discovering Bitcoin back in 2011, 2012, I heard about your work on the Open Transactions Project through an interview that you did with a guy named Hero on a show called Cypherpunked. What was Open Transactions at that time, and why were you excited about it at that time, that it was the project that you were working on? I was excited about the concepts in financial cryptography that I'm exploring in open transactions. And so that was the original reason that I wrote it was just to make a working library and protocol and system that would do those things. Now, I've often heard you describe open transactions as a library. So what functionally could you do with it, right? A library is a set of tools that you can then integrate into other things. What was the point? What did you see people creating with this? Well, sort of like OpenSSL is a encryption library, a crypto library, then I wanted Open Transactions to be like a financial cryptography library that you could use to do any sort of financial cryptography development. So that sounds a lot like Bitcoin when you say it like that. And yet Open Transactions is definitely different than Bitcoin in a couple of ways. So compared to Bitcoin, what is Open Transactions? Bitcoin would be almost like the diametric opposite of Open Transactions. Bitcoin, first of all, is it's like a commodity. It's like a coin, a virtual commodity, whereas OpenTrack does not introduce any new coins. Bitcoin is a form of money itself. It is the money, whereas Open Transactions is not. It's just used for transactions with other money. So you could use Bitcoin as money on Open Transactions, but it's sort of like financial cryptography that has a similar infrastructure to a Bitcoin or a Ripple or something like that but doesn't actually use a native token and can be made to work with pretty much any type of token through connections. Yes. Yes. It's not really like any of those other systems because for example, Ripple is aiming to be a global ledger, which is what Bitcoin is. Bitcoin is a global ledger. Open Transactions does not have a global ledger. Anytime that it needs a global ledger, it will talk to one. You know, For example, you could use it to talk to Bitcoin. You could have Bitcoin as the ledger. Or you could even integrate it with Ripple or Ethereum or any other global ledgers type of systems. But open transactions itself wouldn't wouldn't be the global ledger. There's other things like, for example, uh, Bitcoin can, uh, stores a complete history of all the transactions down back to the beginning of time, basically. And open transactions are designed to process transactions without storing any history. So in many ways, it's sort of like the opposite of these systems. Also, Bitcoin is P2P, it's distributed open transactions servers. Now, usually the problem with that is that servers have to be trusted and they abuse that trust. And so with open transactions, I wanted to make a server that did not have to be trusted. If it was a malicious server, it would not be able to defraud the users. So when you say that these things are opposite, Bitcoin has some things and cryptocurrency itself has some things that they do really well, like this ledger that can last for a very long period of time and you can't be changed and they've got tokens that ride on them so all of these things effectively open transactions can be made by the specific deployment to say look at the bitcoin blockchain and to then be able to use bitcoin's continuity 
but be able to use all the things that are advantages in the server world, like having transactions that don't have a cost going between two individuals and things that can happen instantly and you can do checks and stuff like that. All sorts of things you can't do with Bitcoin by itself. But if you combine Bitcoin with open transactions, well, you can send a check in open transactions that represents Bitcoin and can be used to get Bitcoin out, right? Yeah, that's right. I mean, if you think about it, people in the Bitcoin world are building these things anyway. You know, why did they build Bitstamp, for example? Because there was some sort of functionality that, that people get from using Bitstamp that they don't get from just using Bitcoin by itself. And this functionality is so valuable to users that they're willing to trust someone else to hold their money in order to access this functionality. And so what I'm looking at with open transactions, at least as far as it relates to the Bitcoin space, is I'm saying, what are all these things that people are building anyway, that people need anyway in the Bitcoin world, where they currently have to have some trusted entity? And how can I make it to where they don't have to trust where they currently do? So now Open Transactions is a project that I've known about for, I think, something like five years. How long have you actually been working on it? Since January 2010. Okay, so I figured out about it not too far after you started working on it. That's great. <laughs> You're ahead of the curve. <laughs> no, that, that's pretty normal here. So uh, the thing about it, though, is that I've never actually used Open Transactions. I've had a couple of projects over the last specifically year and a half or so where I've been like, oh, this is something where Open Transactions could really help what we're doing because you have to trust the servers. And again, uh, right now, the project I'm working on with Tokenly we're building server-based tools that then interact with Bitcoin and the blockchain at this kind of level because there are real meaningful advantages to using servers. But again, like you said, it has this trust component. So why have I never been able to use open transactions? The holy grail that we've been waiting on is the voting pools technology. There's two sides here. The first side is the open transactions receipts. The open transactions receipts are unforgeable. So the server can't create a false receipt with your signature on it. And the users are the ones who create the receipts in open transactions, or at least the client, the client software. And now, uh, just to clarify, a receipt is what it looks like when I send something to someone else, right? Right. When, well, let's say you want to send a payment or do any kind of transaction. Normally, you think of it like you request a transaction and then the server would give you a receipt. But the way it works in open transactions is that the client side creates the receipt. And then the OT server? just verifies it and countersigns it and sends it back. And so it's actually the client side creating all the receipts because it has the client's signature. The purpose of that is so that the server cannot forge receipts. He can't create false receipts because he would have to be able to sign your signature on them. That part of open transactions is pretty solid. Here's where the problem comes in is, let's say that I sent you some Bitcoins and you're going to hold the Bitcoins. And then meanwhile, we're going to do all these transactions off-chain using the OT receipts. But you still have that same problem that there's someone holding that money. And th this is the, the voting pools. The voting pools is meant to solve this problem, to make it so that the server operator does not have to hold the money. And until that is available for general use, then open transactions isn't really going to do you much good because it has these, you know, it has this really cool financial cryptography. It has these unforgeable receipts, but at the same time, without voting pools, you would still be trusting someone to hold that money. So voting pools are the thing that you're waiting on. That's really why you're not going to see a lot of people using open transactions just yet. Well, is anybody using it yet? There's no point of using it because you would have to trust someone else to hold the money. You see what I mean? And so I think it's one of those things where once we have the voting pools out where people can use them 
then we think there's going to be a lot of pressure for people to use it because their competitors will be using it. That argument, normally I would buy, but we haven't really seen it with the multisig thing. After Mt. Gox, there was a lot of thought that multisig and the ability to do transparent audits would become, like you said, it would, you know, there'd be pressure because the people who aren't doing it, well, they could do it, doesn't really cost them any more money, so why aren't they doing it? Do they have something to hide? And then that causes a problem for them where they have to prove it, so they might as well just do it to begin with. So that hasn't actually happened in, uh, in exchanges. So, I mean, like, is, is that really the thing that, that you think is going to happen here? Or is this just like one use case potentially? No, I think, I think it's a critical factor. And, you know, voting pools are very different than what we see today when we talk about multi-sig. It, the multi-sig has sort of become a buzzword in the past six months or 12 months. You see a lot of people saying, oh, we have multi-sig now, but this is not voting pools. You know, a multi-sig that you would have today basically just allows you to lock up your coins so you can't do anything with them until you unlock them again. Let me give you an example. Let's say that Alice puts some funds in Coinbase. Coinbase has a multi-sig vault. And so she puts her funds in her multi-sig vault. This means that she's not just trusting Coinbase to hold the money, but that she also has a signature on the money and that now both of them have to approve to move the money. Unless she pulls out her backup key, then she can do it without their permission. What, what this comes down to is that Coinbase alone does not have the ability to move those funds at all. And what that means is that while those funds are in that multi-sig vault, she cannot do any off-chain transactions. She can't do any trading with that money. She can't do anything with that money. She can't even transfer it to anyone else. Until she pulls it out of that multi-sig vault, then she can use it again. And so the multi-sig that we see today is multi-sig where the user has a signature on the multi-sig. And that means all the transactions have to be on-chain. That means anytime something's going to happen with that money, the user has to come online and get on their computer and sign something. Now, the way it would work in a voting pool is that the signers would be the members of the pool. So let's say that you had, say, five servers in a pool. Then the signers on that multi-sig would be those five servers. Alice would not have a signature. As soon as she deposits the voting pool, now she doesn't have a signature at all. The five servers have the signature. Now her signature is going on the OT receipts. Now she's conducting all her transactions using OT signed receipts. And this allows you to have off-chain transactions, the full gamut of any type of off-chain transaction, such as bid-ask markets or scripted smart contracts or any, any of this other functionality, or even just fast transactions, fast, cheap transactions. You can't do any of that stuff in the current multi-sig offerings that we see out there today. Basically, this is like the casino model that we see with a lot of individual installations, except because you have multiple unrelated, one assumes unrelated parties that all have one of these keys and they all need... So how would a voting pool work? If there are five servers, do all five of them need to sign or is it a threshold amount? Well, most of the time what they're doing is they're just auditing each other. So all these servers are all processing transactions or at least notarizing them, you know, sort of countersigning them. And they're all also auditing them for each other. And let's say that at some point, you know, Alice sends some money to Bob using OT. So now Bob has some money in his OT account. And then he decides he wants to withdraw out of the pool. So he does a typical OT receipt. He creates a little withdrawal receipt and he puts on the receipt, you know, what his new balance will be after the withdrawal and he signs it and sends it. 
the servers in the pool are auditing these receipts. And when they see this withdrawal receipt from Bob and then they verify it, then they vote multi-sig on-chain to move those funds. And so most of the time they're not doing on-chain votes. They're just sitting there auditing receipts. But every now and then, if someone does a withdrawal, then they're going to do an on-chain multi-sig basically audit confirmation, and then the funds move on the chain to Bob. I understand that, and that makes sense. And so you get all of the advantages of being able to do this off-chain stuff without having to trust any individual Coinbase or anything like that, and without having the inconvenience of the current systems where effectively what this is, is it's all Oracle, right? The user is no longer directly involved. The user might be indicating their will, right? They might be indicating within the system, but they're no longer touching the Bitcoin at all or the Bitcoin network at all, it's all happening by the oracles. That's correct. But oracles who are unable to falsify receipts. Oracles who are unable to falsify receipts. They can countersign these transactions. Because everybody is auditing it, so anybody who does falsify something would be caught almost immediately. Yeah. Well, I mean, you, you can't create a false receipt because you'd have to be able to put Alice's signature on her receipt. And if you don't have her private key, then you can't create an Alice receipt. If Alice tries to spend more than she has, that will also be rejected for the same basic reason. Exactly. Because it's, it's inconsistent with the reality. Right. Now, of course, normally, whatever server she's talking to before it even got to the auditors, but let's say that the two were in cahoots, right? Let's say that she created a dummy account and she's a malicious server and she's trying to create some false receipt and then she signs it for herself. In that case, then the, uh, the pool members would see it on the audit and, then, of course, then she would be kicked out of the pool. So I understand what voting pools are. So what's the problem with voting pools? And how long has this feature been the, the sticking point on the project? Oh, there's just been a huge amount of development going into making it work. It's, it's multiple different software projects to make it work. It's not an easy problem to solve. There are a lot of edge cases. There are a lot of sort of what ifs. There are a lot of strange cases that don't happen that often, but still could happen. All the same sorts of problems that you see, uh, like with transaction malleability. You know, let's say that you have a transaction that is on the chain and it's a valid transaction. And then later on, it's the same transaction, but it has a different ID because a different, a different version of it got mined in, right? So you end up with a, a valid transaction that did occur, but over time its ID changed. And so the system has to be able to see that, you know, the auditing and so on has to be able to see those sorts of things and know what happened and, and make sense of them. This episode of Let's Talk Bitcoin is brought to you by my company, Tokenly, which recently launched our full website at tokenly.com. Today, we've got another musical break, so sit back and enjoy the sounds of open source artist General Fuzz. And I'll be back with the magic word in a moment.
This instrumental track is called Warm Steel off General Fuzz's album Soul Fulfilling, which you can find for free at generalfuzz.net. The magic word for episode 251 is cash. That's C-A-S-H. Cash. You've got until the 6th of October to visit letstalkbitcoin.com or the Let's Talk Bitcoin iOS app to enter it for your share of the listener rewards. years ago, you were one of the founders of a company called Monitas, with what I believe was the aim of delivering the promise of open transactions to end users. And I think that eventually that morphed into bringing the promise of open transactions to uh, banking type users who already had the relevant licenses and could use the technology. How did open transactions progress in the years before Monitas? Why did you start Monitas? And what were the goals with Monitas when you did start it? Well, when I started Monitas, it was with my co-founder, Johan Geffers. And the idea was to make a commercial implementation of open transactions, sort of a more commercial version that we could license, and to really focus on mobile payments in Africa. We viewed that Africa is this huge opportunity because you have all these people who don't have a bank account or can't get a bank account. But meanwhile, there's a, an Android phone in everyone's pocket. So we could see that very quickly, things were going to change in Africa in terms of digital finance. That was really the aim of the company. And over time, we, you know, we continued and progressed and we did make a commercial implementation and we did focus on mobile payments in Africa. And I think that became more of a focus for the company than the voting pools. It became more of a mobile payments in Africa focus, which is what we started for. Could the mobile payments in Africa be enabled without the voting pools? Well, certainly. I mean, they have that now. Like, for example, M-Pesa in Kenya. You know, everyone in Kenya can whip out their cell phone and send M-Pesa to each other. And there's some central control, you know, the telco in Kenya. And so you could do that sort of thing. You could go say that you got a deal with an African telco to provide mobile payments on, on all their mobile phones. And you wouldn't necessarily Bitcoin integration at all. I mean, all you would need is a telco with a bank account to store a bunch of, you know, African currency in it. Which I guess kind of begs the question... Why was that the thing that you guys chose to focus on? You know, in the Bitcoin space, this has been a, a popular story there too. And I imagine that a lot of those companies were making the decision to go after this market about the same time that you guys were, uh, or frankly, after the fact. So I've never seen a working version of open transactions. Is this, this something that I can use or is it something that only went out to licensed users? Well, I, I don't think Monitas has launched it yet. I think they're launching it on uh, October 9th was the last that I heard. They're launching sort of a trial run with their first African country on at least, that's what they're saying is October 9th. I heard that a couple of months ago, you parted ways with Monitas and then Monitas itself wasn't using open transaction technology anymore. So is it technology derived from open transactions? And I guess the, the broader question is here, tell us about how your relationship with Monitas ended and what that means for open transactions or what was being built at Monitas. Well, at Monitos, like I said, we were working on a commercial implementation that was inspired by open transactions. And so for several years, we were working on a complete rewrite of the system to make a new commercial version. Now, at some point earlier this year, Johan and I decided to part ways. It, it was an amicable split to sort of take full control of the company and do it his way, which is fine by me. 
I made a deal with him to take my technology with me. So they signed over open transactions. And I think the new implementation that they have is far enough along that they could just run with that and go off and use it and start licensing it to hopefully African telcos. So the open transactions that you're talking about that's been, I guess, signed over or licensed back to you is the original project that you've been working on since 2010. Correct. And the one that they've kept is this commercial re-implementation that you guys have been working on for the last couple of years. So they're, they're actually two open transactions now. Yeah, well, I wouldn't describe theirs as open transactions. Theirs was originally on the same protocol, but once we split, you know, there was no requirement that the protocols remain the same. And I'm sure that they've since diverged as they've continued on development. They just did it their way. And so you could say that they're very similar. You could say that one was inspired by the other, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't call their implementation open transactions at this point. You know, it's a, it's a new piece of software and the protocols have diverged. What does this mean for open transactions? Because the question I'm about to ask you basically is, what's your next secret project that I've heard about? <laughs> My new project is a company that I'm doing with Cliff Baltzley, who's the founder of Hushmail. And you can check out the website right now. It's uh, stashcrypto.com. The company's called Stash. So what are you doing at Stash Crypto? We're continuing on with open transactions and voting pools. My interest is on cryptographic proofs and open transactions and especially voting pools where, you know, 99% of the way there with voting pools, we're very close to having them working and being able to demo them. So it's an exciting time for us. After voting pools, what's next? Is this really kind of the last big hurdle that you guys have been pushing on? Or do you see some more dragons in the distance? After voting pools are out, I think it will be an endless pipeline of new things that we will be able to unveil, new functionality that we'll be able to show um, that will just continuously be revealed and released. There's so much, you know, that open transactions can do that you just wouldn't use it for as long as you didn't have voting pools. And I'll give you an example, smart contracts. All right, open transactions right now, but you would have to trust someone to hold the money. So once that trust is eliminated and the money's sitting in the voting pool, then suddenly we can, you know, take a few weeks and polish off a smart contract feature and people could have access to smart contracts. And then same thing with bid ask markets and the same thing with many other things. You know, we already have a bit message integration in our GUI. And so there's just a lot of useful things we can do once we have the money stored safely. So open transactions is a technology that people will be able to use as individuals. You'll be able to run a server, you know, and uh, not necessarily have to take on the trust of being somebody who has full possession of the tokens that are stored on it. That's right. Now, I still don't necessarily think people are going to use them in the United States, though, because, I mean, as far as I know, a lot of Bitcoin mining already left the United States. And do you think that that's basically because even though, you know, it's not technically your responsibility slash fault, it looks a whole lot like it since you're running a server. And so the distinction doesn't matter. Yeah, I mean, Bitcoin miners have this legal concern where they say, well, what if people say that we're a money transmitter because we're running this Bitcoin miner? Well, let's go run it in Iceland. Electricity's cheaper over there anyway, right? So all the same things apply to open transaction servers? I wouldn't be surprised. I mean, I, I'm not going to be the one operating the servers, right? We're just a software company. We'll be licensing this stuff. But it seems to me that if Bitcoin miners aren't operating in the United States, then probably a lot of things aren't going to be operating in the United States. 
So it's great to hear that you're continuing work on open transactions. I was totally expecting you to tell me that you had pivoted to a different type of project and was, you know, was concerned basically that open transactions was not going to be usable in a way that I have always hoped that it would be. So you're working on voting pools now. Do you guys have any sort of, you know, rough time frame you can throw at me as to when I can actually get my hands on this? I think we'll probably start revealing certain things in Q4 of this year. Different disparate features will start unveiling them and over time hooking them up together. You know, it, it may seem strange if I unveil one thing and then another thing that seems unrelated, but then over time we'll have more and more features coming out where people will see how it all ties together. You've been in this space for a long time. I'm super curious. You know, you called this thing with smart contracts a very long time ago with open transactions and open transactions indeed, you know, still is kind of one of those projects that's out there that is a uh, almost perfect opposite to what's going on with cryptocurrency and they both could really really empower each other uh what other projects in the space whether specifically bitcoin or cryptocurrency or broader fintech are you looking at these days that you're like these are smart ideas and you know these are the right ideas that will be the big ones well i really like augur what do you like about augur I'm just a big fan of prediction markets. I think prediction markets are are just wonderful, amazing things. And it's been a shame that they've been, you know, to a large degree sort of politically suppressed for so many years. And now that you have a platform like Ethereum coming out where this prediction market can operate in a censorship resistant way, then we might be able to actually see some of the social change that can be driven by prediction markets. You know, they can, they can uh, drive a lot of scientific advancement and political change as well. What do you think about Ethereum relative to, you know, you were saying that once you've got voting pools, well, you can do smart contracts and then it's got all these advantages compared to a blockchain type system. So, I mean, so where does Ethereum fit into, you know, open transactions? Is there a lot of overlap here? And frankly, do you think that open transactions is better is going to be better for doing some of these things? Well, I think that Ethereum, from my perspective, is is very similar to Bitcoin. You know, Ethereum is a project that we may eventually integrate the same way that we've integrated Bitcoin. And, you know, Ethereum does scripts on a blockchain, but then again, Bitcoin does scripts on a blockchain. And so where is someone going to run a script on open transactions instead of Ethereum? I think scripts running on open transactions are going to be much cheaper and much faster. And scripts running on Ethereum will most likely be more censorship resistant. So I think you'll see scripts running on Ethereum where they absolutely have to be censorship resistant. And a good example is something like Augur. And I think most of the scripts and smart contracts will be offloaded onto servers like open transaction servers where they are cheap and fast to, to operate. And then they'll probably still communicate with on-blockchain scripts. And the, the ones that run on the chain will be the ones where it's so critical for them to be censorship resistant that people are willing to tolerate the additional cost and the slower speed in order to gain that feature. You described running an open transaction server in kind of the same way and uh, a little bit analogous to how somebody mines for Bitcoin now. Is that correct? Do you see those as analogous activities? And do you think that people will run open transaction servers? I mean, like, there's no monetary incentive, but I guess in terms of commitment is what I'm asking. Well, they're not perfectly analogous, but there are areas where the comparison can be useful. If you're running a Bitcoin miner, then it should be producing money for you. And similarly, if you're running an OT server, then it should be producing money for you. You should be earning transaction fees off of, off of that operation. 
Now, similarly, if a Bitcoin miner feels that it's better for him in terms of legal liability to not operate in the United States, then I wouldn't be surprised if an OT server operator made the same decision. You know, OT is not uh, a blockchain. They're not perfectly analogous. But certainly, I would think if, if you had a problem running a Bitcoin miner in the US because you're worried about legal liability, then you probably wouldn't run an OT server in the US either. You've got a great co-founder, you know, the, uh, the creator of Hushmail, yep. uh, which shut its doors somewhat dramatically <laughs> last year. Uh, I think they're still up and operational. I can tell you what the, the, the big problem was with Hushmail. See, Hushmail, they want to do client encryption. So they wanted to make sort of PGP style email easy for users. You know, if I go and use their web interface, they have a little Java or JavaScript web interface that downloads and runs in my browser and does the encryption in my browser. And that way, by the time it sends the mail through their server, they don't see the mail because it's encrypted. So all they have is the encrypted mail. And so the government came to Hushmail and they said, well, what we want you to do is we want you to install malware on a user's computer where he thinks that it's encrypting his mail. But really what it's doing is it's encrypting his mail and um, giving us a copy of his key, right? Yeah. You know, as long as the the JavaScript that you're running is just is just doing what it's supposed to be doing and encrypting the mail, that's fine. But then as soon as, you know, someone comes in and points a gun at your head and says, put some different software, you know, that when that user logs on, he gets a different piece of JavaScript than everyone else gets. And that different piece of JavaScript will grab the key. And so there's nothing that stops a government from forcing a company to do that. And so that was the big problem that came out in the news with Hushmail was, was that people realized publicly that, hey, this can happen. This is a possibility. And they admit it. You know, they say, hey, your email is encrypted and no one has your key. But if the government comes to us, the proper authorities, and they have a warrant and so on and so forth, they do the proper channels, then we will have to roll over and do what they ask. And that's a possibility. And so I think you can avoid that possibility by just not using their web interface. And if you don't use the web interface, the problem just goes away? Well, then they can't download some fake JavaScript to your computer. Because that's the thing, is it can be chained. Right. I mean, what you could do is, you, you know, let's say there's a desktop client and you download the code yourself and you inspect it yourself and you compile it yourself. Then you're pretty sure there's not some backdoor in there that's saving somewhere. So Hushmail is actually, they're still in business. They're still doing their thing. I think they're just focusing on enterprise customers and, um, you know, being a good boy whenever the warrant comes in. So how did the conversation to start this new project start with him? Well, I basically told him that I was stepping down from Monotos and that I had an amicable agreement with Johan to part ways and, you know, started talking to me about starting up a company, which seemed like a great idea to me. It's exactly what I was planning to do. Well, Chris, uh, it's always great to catch up with you on this stuff. I think that we should schedule the next talk for, say, six months from now. We'll start scheduling in about three months. <laughs> yeah, that sounds perfect. Yeah, cool. Hopefully great. we'll have more to show and uh, we'll have more to talk about. Thanks for listening to this episode of Let's Talk Bitcoin. Content for today's show was provided by Chris and Adam. Music for this episode was provided by Jared Rubens and General Fuzz. This episode was edited by Adam B. Levine. Any questions or comments? Email adam at letstalkbitcoin.com. Have a good one.